The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Today's Bible reading comes from the book of Ephesians, and I'll be reading all of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace which he had made abound toward, toward us in all wisdom and um, prudence, having made us known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the, the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both of which in heaven and which are on earth in him. In, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who all works of all things according to the counsel of his will. That, will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you are also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of our purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our glory, may give to your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may have known that this is the hope of his calling, who are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in which the age is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Let's pray again, shall we? Loving Father, we pray this morning as we would open your word together that you would come and speak to us. Father, we pray that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to hear what you would say to us. Father, we pray that you would meet us according to our need this morning and encourage our hearts through the word of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, is writing his letter to the saints and the faithful ones who are at Ephesus and, dare I say, at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church this morning. His word carries on beyond just its initial writing and its initial recipients. Paul is writing to describe and expound to them the new creation of God. The believers are new creations in Christ. The church is the new community of believers in Christ together. The new standard of behavior he also writes about as members of the new community. And he writes about the new way in which we are to 
uh, handle and enjoy our relationships, both in the family and parents and marriage and at work. Paul is beginning his letter as he usually does with an expression of thanksgiving to God that has overflowed and instead is an extended expression of praise to God for their, for our salvation. As Paul overflows in praise to God, he unfolds for us some very rich truths about our salvation, about the gospel. He reminds us that our salvation did not begin at the cross. Our salvation did not begin even at Mount Sinai when the law was given through Moses. Our salvation did not even begin back at the entrance to the Garden of Eden where the very first pronouncement of the gospel was made to Adam and Eve. Our salvation began in the timeless eons of eternity past. Our salvation from the wrath of God himself began in the unchanging mind and counsel and purposes of God. And because of that, our salvation is absolutely secure. I don't know if you're one of those people, and I think we all go through at different times, that struggle with the assurance of whether or not we really have salvation. Maybe you struggle with doubts about whether or not our salvation can be lost. I want to share with you this morning that this message is for you. This message will remind and reinforce to you that Our salvation is absolutely secure in Christ. The second significant point by way of introduction is that these great rich truths are presented to us as part of Paul's joyful expression of praise. They become a call to all of us to join with him in praising our God. The life of a believer must be, it should be, a life of continual joyful praise to God for the salvation that he has made. Whether you're going through darkness and despair or not, Joy and praise ought to be the mark of a believer. I think we've all read that story where Paul is in the bottom of the Philippian jail. And I had seen pictures of where they surmised that this jail was. It was literally little more than a dugout into the ground with a big door on the front of it. And he's put in there after being beaten by the Philippians. And at midnight, him and Silas are singing hymns and psalms to God in praise to God. A very pointed reminder that doesn't matter what your circumstances might be. It doesn't matter what you may be going through. Our life can still be an overflowing expression of praise and joy before the Lord. Joy doesn't depend on the circumstances. If it does, then it's not really joy. Joy depends on the fact that we know and we have been saved and brought into a relationship with the living God. Our salvation is absolutely secure. No matter what this world or the prince of the power of the air or the government or whatever else can throw at us, our salvation can never be touched, can never be taken from us. And so I want to set before us all today five reasons, five arguments for why we can and why we should, why we must praise our God throughout all of our life. God is worthy to be praised who has chosen us. And I want to outlay for you five reasons there. Number one, the nature of God's choosing. Number two, the means of God's choosing. Number three, the basis of God's choosing. Number four, the purpose. And number five, the goal of God's choosing. In your uh, bulletin, there should be a little note sheet, a little sermon outline there. I do apologize for those of you who got the ones that are almost invisible. The, the, print, the, the printing has gotten super faded. Uh, I do believe that our printer copier has uh, departed this mortal coil. It's no longer a going concern. And I think we're going to have to get a new one. It just keeps fading away to nothing. So hopefully you can read that. And if not, come find me and I can print you out one on my little inkjet that will get you a better copy. So first of all, we want to notice the text. In Ephesians 1, I'm going to read again. Ephesians 1, 3, 4, 5, and 6, just to give you a focus on our text Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He, or having predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ 
to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Notice, first of all, the nature of God's choosing. First of all, he says, just as, in the beginning of verse number four there, the word in this context means just as, or since, or because. And Paul is doing is he's moving from a general statement in chapter three, where he says, the blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, worthy to be praised is God. And he says, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That blessed us is a very general statement, and it covers and introduces everything he's going to say from that point onwards. And when he hits verse 4, when he says, just as, you could paraphrase it by saying, to be specific, he chose us. In him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. He freely bestowed grace on us and so on. And Paul is answering the question, what exactly are the spiritual blessings that we have been blessed with? And then he starts with the work of God in eternity past to choose us so that all other following blessings could be heaped on us, could be ours. Paul in his exalting, rejoicing over this text, is first giving us the nature of God's blessing. Notice, he chose us. Chosen is a word, it's an aorist middle verb, if you're a grammatical grammarian or whatever people who study grammar are. What it means is that he chose it for himself. It has the idea of selecting from a group. It was a whole group of people God chose. He selected out. Now, that's a very difficult truth, and a lot of people really struggle with the idea of God's election of the believers to salvation. It causes a lot of, bit, a lot of upsetness. And we, from our perspective, see that, that we chose God. When we responded to the gospel call, we chose Him, and the reality is we did. We heard the gospel call, and I made a decision to follow Christ. I made a decision to bow the knee to trust Christ, to repent of my sin, turn around, go the other way and follow Christ. But the reality is, first of all, before all of that happened, God chose us for himself. We are all part of that group of humanity that was and is utterly unable to choose for God, to choose for good. The great lie in the Garden of Eden when the devil was talking to the woman was, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The part that he didn't tell her, the little fine pin at the bottom of the page, said this, although you will know good and you will know evil, you will never be able to choose for good. You will always choose for evil. Reality is that even if I could cure cancer, if I don't have the motive to please God, if I don't have the faith in my heart to trust God for that process, that still is a sinful action. You say, how can that be? We we need a cure for cancer. How could you possibly say that? Because the Bible tells us very clearly in the book of Romans that anything that is done, if it is not done in faith in God, it is not done with a desire to please God. If it's done with anything else, it's still sin. Because everything that we are designed for, everything we are to do is to glorify God in everything. Paul says it so Beautifully, I think it's almost with a smile on his face. He says, so whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. I can just see him in his cell. He's writing the letter. You know, he's got a little wooden cup of juice there and an old chunk of moldy bread. And they're rats and nibbling on the corner. And he's writing. He looks up and says, well, that'll do. Whatever you eat, whether you drink, do it to the glory of God. Which means that everything in our lives is to be done to glorify and honor God. If it's done out of a desire for self, that doesn't glorify God, that commits idolatry, and it's still sin. So even the best actions that we could possibly do, if they're not done with a drive and a desire to glorify God as an exercise of faith in God, a desire to please God, it's still sin. The problem with us is, I heard this statement made, listening to a conference on... uh, on the gospel in the States. And the guy said, listen, every single struggle we have with biblical doctrine can be traced right back to its beginning. And that beginning problem is we don't fully understand that man is totally corrupt before God. 
The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else. Desperately sick, who can know it? Paul, if you take your Bible and just flip over one page to Ephesians 2, the first couple of verses, he says, We were dead in sins. He says, we walked and lived according to the course of this world. That's sinful. He says that we walked and lived according to the prince of the power of the air. That's rebellion. He says, we lived in the lusts of the flesh. That means we were utterly self-centered. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. That means left to ourselves, we have one destination. We are all headed exactly towards wrath of God. Man is utterly corrupt before God, left to our own devices. We cannot, left to our own devices, our own workings, we cannot come, we will not come to God. And when you hear the incredible news, but God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, it's not a problem. We're not saying, hey, He made us into robots. No, we just sort of turn around and go, wow, the grace of God. I could never choose for him, but he still chose for me. I could never do anything that would please him on my own, yet he still chose me. I could never trust him without his intervening, and he still chose me. I don't want to, to separate us and tear us apart. It ought to bring us to our knees in joyful thanksgiving that God chose us. And that's why exactly why Paul says, Blessed be God, worthy of praise is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. To be, try it again. To be specific, He chose us. That's grace. That's amazing grace. Listen. God's choosing here wasn't the first time Israel, the grumbling, mumbling, murmuring slave people was sovereignly chosen by God. And what did he say to them? I didn't choose you because you were the biggest nation or the broadest nation or the nation with the most power or the best government or the nicest language and music. No, I chose you because you were nothing that I might show and display my power through you. The greatest, most powerful nation on the earth at the time was Egypt, and they got to see all of the glory of God's power as he delivered his people out of Egypt. God chose a man named Paul. If you're going to pick a guy to be the leader of the gospel preaching apostles, if you're going to be the guy, pick the guy to go out into the uh, Gentile world with the message of the gospel, who would you pick? Well, you know, I picked someone who'd been, you know, raised well, gone through Sunday school, gone through youth group. You know, he had a degree, maybe three or four degrees in theology. I'd pick a guy that had all the benefits, all the blessings. He said, you know what I'll do? I'll pick the equivalent of a torturer from the middle of the Soviet Union. I'll pluck him up. I'll save him and I'll send him off to preach the gospel. And he picked Paul. That's why Paul can say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's why he can say, worthy of praise is our God who has blessed us in this way. He chose us. And he, Paul knew in stating that he was saying, God chose me. He drew me out to send me off to preach the gospel. A marvel at the difference. You can see it between the lines of the text in the book of Acts, chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9. And you read about Paul as he goes off and starts preaching the gospel. And you read about Paul in some of the latest stories of the book of Acts. And you just see the tremendous effect that grace has had on Paul's life. He chose him. You know, you think about us. We have anything to be proud of because God chose us? Let me tell you what Paul says about the church. I think he could honestly say that the church in Corinth and the church in Noble Park are the same. Listen, he says this, uh, God chose the foolish. Hey, I'm here. God chose the weak. Got me covered. God chose the base, the ignoble. Yep, that's us. God chose the despised things of the world. Why? That he might shame the things that are. God chose everything that was nothing that He might display His power and His grace through us. God always chooses as an overflowing expression of His grace. It isn't because of anything that He could find in us that made us worthy of something. It's because He could find nothing in us. And He could say, there it is, that's the one. I will choose Him. I will choose all of them. 
My grace will shine through them and my power to change them will shine through them and the world will look and marvel. They'll take one look at Wes and Poovin and Nelson and go, there's nothing in those guys that can make them like that. That has to be the power of God. God chose us. God is worthy of praise who chose us. Give praise to God, Christian. Give praise to God who blessed us by choosing us, who chose us when we couldn't, we wouldn't ever choose for him. Notice secondly, second point, the means of God's choosing is in Christ. Again, we begin with the text of Scripture, Ephesians 1 verse 4. He says, just as he chose us in him. Notice the centrality of Christ through the whole passage. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace and peace commended to us from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him, that's Christ. Verse 5, he predestined us through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he bestowed grace on us in the beloved, in Christ. Central to all of Paul's thinking and praising of God is Christ. Central to all Paul's thinking about our salvation, it will always be Christ. Listen, the goal of living this Christian life is to see how everything, and I mean everything, is related to Christ. Our marriages, our home, our family, our business, our eating, our drinking, our everything relates to Christ. Christ is central to it all. So Paul can naturally say, listen, he chose us in him. He chose us in Christ. Now the preposition in usually means within or inside, but in this case it has a slightly bigger meaning. It kind of means within the parameters, within the boundaries within which we are blessed. Being in Christ is the means by which God imparts and bestows and pours out, lavishes, as the word of the text says, He blesses us. In Christ means that only through Christ may we receive God's blessing, God's choosing. Paul answers for us the question that rises up in our our hearts once again. We know we're sinners. We're totally corrupt before God. How can God choose us who are dead in sin? And what that word means, just to jump ahead, Ephesians 2 verse 1. When he says dead in sin, he means those who are completely oblivious to all that's going on. Who here watched the movie The Matrix? A few little hands. Just, just. I don't want to admit it out loud, but I did. Yeah, <laughs> I watched it. I don't recommend you watch it, but there is a really neat thing in that movie. And if those of you know the movie, those of you who are willing to admit it, and those of you who are not willing to admit that you actually did see the movie, uh, it's kind of like two worlds existing, simultaneous, and one world is completely oblivious to the other one, and the this. Computer weird world, it's science fiction, right? Computer weird world operates and they're running around and shooting each other and the guy's in that cool thing where he bends over and the bullets just go right by him and all that stuff. And it's all happening. And if you watch the scenes from the other perspective, people in the world are just driving around in their cars, doing their thing. They're absolutely oblivious to the other operation that's going on simultaneous to the first. And it's a beautiful picture of what it means to be dead in sins. We become oblivious. We're almost obtuse. We just cannot see what God is doing. And when God makes us alive, when God regenerates us, and he begins to work his salvation, it's it's almost like God reaches down to our hearts and he just flips a switch. He turns me on. And all of a sudden, everything comes alive. And all of a sudden, I realize. Remember the scene in Acts chapter 2? Peter's preaching. And all the nations around him in front of them, they're all standing there, and he's preaching away. And finally, at the end of that preaching sermon, he's, they say, Sirs, what must we do? The Bible says right before that, they were pricked in their hearts. And I'm absolutely convinced that was the work of the Spirit of God to make them alive, to awaken them to the spiritual realities that Peter is preaching about. But here's the problem we're dead in sin. How can God choose us who are dead in sin? And the answer is this. 
It's almost like God reaches down and his hand is clothed in Christ and he reaches down and he grasps onto us with his hand clothed in Christ and he brings us and draws us and chooses us for himself. And whatever is in Christ is brought to himself. You say, what did he do? Notice Paul says here, in Christ in one phrase and through Christ in verse 5. It is through Christ's life in perfect obedience to God's law that we're brought to God. It is through Christ's death in obedience to God, making atonement for us, being our satisfactory substitutionary sacrifice that we're brought to God. It is through Christ's death in which he absorbed and satisfied God's anger at my sin that we're brought to God. It is through Christ's resurrection that we have life, new life. He raised us from the dead, never to die again. We will never know spiritual death. Yeah, my body might, you know, get old and crumble up and die. But my spirit will go to be with the Lord. It won't stop. It won't just finish. I won't just go to blackness. I will literally pass out of this realm into the next. A friend of mine, his dad was dying. He said it was the most amazing thing. His dad was a Christian. And as he was dying of cancer in a, in a horrible way, his son and his son-in-law were kind of supporting him on one side, trying to help him breathe in the last few moments of his life. And he said, they said his dad looked up and he went, oh, it's beautiful. And just gone. And they're convinced, absolutely convinced that when their dad looked up in the corner of the room, the, there's nothing there but the walls and the ceiling for them. But I'm absolutely convinced, and they are too, that heaven opened. And in that last moment, my friend saw heaven open and saw them coming for him. And he was caught, he was just taken away. His body was left behind, if you like. We who are made alive in Christ, given new life, will never know the horrors of death that the unbeliever knows. I was sharing on Wednesday night that uh, Nietzsche, I think it was, who said, God is dead. He died. You know how he died? Screaming in terror. All of a sudden, all of his theories just kind of evaporated away. Listen, God made us through Christ alive. Outside of Christ, there is no spiritual blessing. We must be united to Christ to receive God's blessing. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 2.20, same idea. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, by the, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The Bible says in Romans 6, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. God chose us in Christ, and he chose us through Christ. Well, how then are we united with Christ? How are we in Christ? The Bible makes it clear that by grace through faith, It's by grace, God's grace was exercised in choosing us. God's grace was exercised in providing Christ as our Savior. God's grace was exercised toward us in preaching the gospel that we heard. By God's grace, we are chosen and we believe. By God's grace, through faith, we are united with Christ. I trust Him. I am in Him. And He's in me. Same thing in reverse. Not that he trusts me. I still trust him. I repent of my sin and I'm bound together with him. But it gets better. He uses an even better term in a couple minutes we'll look at to describe that relationship that can never be broken. God is worthy of praise who chose us in Christ and through Christ. Rejoice, Christian. Give praise to God, Christian. Live your life as an overflowing expression of praise to God because he chose us in Christ and through Christ. He made us fit to be his people. He made us fit to be his covenant community. 
Thirdly, the basis of God's choosing us, it says in verse number 5, He predestined us. Now, I like the fact that Ben read whatever translation Ben read because he's one, I think it's New King James. Yep. It's the only one, only English one that puts changes He predestined to having predestined. And that's actually the, the right verb tensage. You have an NASB like I do in front of me, you'll have a text note on right beside the uh, He of verse 5, and it should say, having predestined in your margin there. That's a better rendering of the, of the word. What's the point? He says, he, in verse number five, he having, or let me try again. He says, having predestined us to adoption as sons. What is the basis of our being chosen? Now, you can take those two two verbs and two phrases, verse 4, he chose us, and verse 5, he predestined us, and see them as simultaneous. Some people see them as a restatement. So, first of all, he says he chose us, and then he restates it by saying he predestined us, or having predestined us. And I kind of thought, thought yeah, that, that's maybe possible, but I think there's actually more to it than that. You see, the idea of choosing is to choose one or more, a few out of a group. So we've been chosen out from something. Notice what he says in verse number 5. Having predestined us to adoptions as sons. That means he's predestining us into something else. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. So to me, I look at those two statements there. He chose us and having predestined us, and I would say they're actually slightly different. And in fact, I would say that having predestined us falls slightly before, and you could argue there's no time eternity, so how does that work? No, it doesn't work like that. But it's, the idea is sort of prior or, or it, it is the basis. It's sort of the precursor, if you like, to choosing us. He predestined us to be adopted into his family. You want good news? That's good news. He determined beforehand that we would be his sons and daughters. And adoption in the sense that it carries in the first century had no reversal. You were adopted into a family, you could not get out again. And the idea for us for with God's family is having been adopted into God's family, we cannot divorce ourselves. We cannot push ourselves back out again. We are now counted as sons and daughters. There is now a strong bond, a relationship between us and the living God that cannot be broken. It's like when you're, you're sons and daughters. I don't have any daughters, but I'm sure daughters occasionally make their mom and dad a little bit upset, a little bit angry. And then maybe the daughters get a little bit frustrated with mom and dad, and they think, you know, I wish I was a part of some other family. I wish I could take off and go and live with my friend's family because her parents are always nice to me. (laughs) One of you is laughing. Uh, It happens, right? You think, I wish I could be part of something else. But you know the coolest thing is? Even if that daughter, that son gets up and goes away to be in that other person's family, the relationship of parent to child cannot change. My dad is my dad, even though he lives 9,000 miles away on the other side of this planet in a place called Canada. He's still my dad. That will never change. He is still our father. He has predestined us to be included, adopted into his family. And that is the basis of the reason why he chose us. But there is a second reason. Notice something else here. He says in verse number 5, he says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, So he's the recipient of that adoption according to the kind intention of his will. Nobody put a gun to God's head and said adopt. He adopted us. Why? He wanted to. It was his desire to. It was consistent with the counsel of his world, his will. Listen, God was not pressured or compelled to, to adopt us and to choose us. God chose us before the universe. Notice what he says in number four, verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Literally, it means before the commencement of the universe. 
When God is existing in eternity completely by himself, the three persons of the Trinity, he chose us then. Nothing was compelling him to make that choice. He predestined us at the same point in time. Nothing compelled him to make that choice. He did it by the kind intention of his will. No outside force compelled him. We know from Psalm 33, verse 11, we saw it last week, that God's counsel stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19:21 says this, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. God chose us because he wanted to. God chose us as a part of his singular purpose. He chose us that we would see the glory of His grace. And when you put it all together, what you realize is, if something compelled God to choose me, would it still be grace? No, actually it wouldn't. Because now God is being forced to do something that He doesn't want to do. That's not grace. And if it is, it's very begrudging. I would argue it's not. He did it simply because he wanted to. He chose us not for any reason of us. He didn't pick you and not someone else because there's something good about you, something not so good about the other person. All of us, all the sum total of humanity is totally corrupt, not interested, don't care, don't want to know about God. But God in grace chose. God in grace predestined us to be adopted. And the beauty of it is, all is this, God having predestined us to adoption as sons into his family, God having purposed it according to his kind, gracious, steadfast, unchangeable will, God chose us in and through Christ to himself, and it means that we can never, ever lose our salvation. How does God turn around and unadopt us? The Bible never makes any remark about that. How does God take us who were alive, sorry, who were dead, he made us alive. What's he going to do, turn around and make us dead again? Oh, it doesn't make sense. God chose us and he predestined us. We can never lose our salvation. Now, just to go back for a second to the which came first, me choosing God or God choosing me. Yes, a thousand times yes. God chose us before the creation of the universe. That is clear black and white scripture right in front of you on the page. But God also sent a gospel proclamation to us that we heard, which called us to faith and repentance. I heard it, I believed, I repented, and I was saved. But God still chose me, and I had to submit I had to trust and I had to obey. Those two had to be there, but God still chose me beforehand. You say, that's inconsistent. You say, well, yes, to my mind that might be a little bit inconsistent, but the beautiful thing is, to the mind of God, it's not inconsistent. It makes perfect sense to Him, and it's the basis by which we're saved. I love the fact that Paul begins with an expression of praise about these things. God chose us. He predestined us to be adopted into his family. God is worthy of praise, Christian. God is worthy of praise who purposed according to the counsel of his kind, gracious, steadfast, unchangeable will to choose us for himself. God is worthy of praise who chose us in Christ for himself. Rejoice, Christian. God chose you. Rejoice and give praise to God because God planned for you to be adopted into his family and you can never be unadopted. Fourth thing, we're moving quicker. The purpose of God's choosing us to be holy and blameless. Being adopted into a family in the first century uh, AD in a Roman, a Greco-Roman culture is a little different than maybe is today. If a person was adopted in that cult, in that family, that person adopted was expected and demanded to bear the family likeness. So if, if a young guy out of the gutter who had nothing and he was dirty and ragged and unclothed was adopted into a very rich family, they clean him all up, wash him all off, take off his old, filthy, dirty clothes, give him nice, fresh, brute, new, clean clothes, and send him out into the society. And everywhere he went, he would now be known as uh, John, the son of Jim. 
and everything about him would be changed. And he was expected to reflect and bear the image of the family. If the family was a well-learned, well-cultured, musical family, he was expected to be well-learned and to learn, to learn music, to learn culture, that he might portray the family image to everybody else where he went. Now notice what he says in the text here. He says in verse number four that we would be holy and blameless before him. What does that mean? It means that when he adopted us, when he chose us, he chose us for a purpose that we would be holy and we would be blameless. Now you say that's got to do with eternity. That must be in heaven. You're right, it is in heaven, but guess what else? Good news, it's here now too. We are to bear that family image everywhere we go throughout the whole course of our lives. So every time they look at us, they say, that could not be Nelson the way I knew him before he was saved. He's totally different. There's something about him that's completely different and changed. You all heard the story? Uh, Augustine. He was known, uh, he was a famous theologian back in the day, 300 A.D. <laughs> and uh, he, he was a, famous for being a ladies' man. And one day he was walking down the street and there was a lady, one of his girlfriends, saw him and she came up and said, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And he just kind of went right around her and kept right on walking, never, never even looked back. And she was, you know, a little offended by that. And so she chased after him and she said, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And finally he turned, he said, yes, it's you, but it's not me anymore. <laughs> I'm different. I've changed. There is now a new likeness that I bear. I have been called by God to be holy and blameless all through the Bible. Go back to the book of the Old Testament, Exodus and Leviticus. There's 21 times in there the word holy comes up. The people of Israel were called to be holy before God. Keep going right through the Bible shall be holy. That phrase comes up 21 times from the old Bible. It's all over there. We're called as Christians, as men and women who are adopted into the family to bear the family likeness, not just in eternity, but here and now. How will they know that we're Christians? Because we act just like the world and do everything just the way the world does it? No. They'll know we're Christians because of the fact that we have been called to be holy. Yes, we've also been called to be loving. Now notice at the end of verse 4 he says that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. A lot of Bibles stick a full stop right after him and start in love with a capital I. It's like it belongs to the next sentence. More than likely, the New King James, God bless you, Ben, for reading from that version, it includes it in the previous sentence, and the two fit together. You'd say, well, doesn't it make more sense to say that in love God predestined us? It does, you're right, but Paul, in the way he structures his sentences, he always puts the statement first and the qualifying prepositional phrases after. So when he says in verse number 4 that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, it fits that sentence more logically, more structurally. You say, what has that got to do with my life? What it got to do with your life is this. God has adopted you and called you to bear the image of God. And you are to do that not just in holiness and blamelessness without any love for anybody else, but a holy lifestyle, a blameless lifestyle is to be born out and lived out also in love for one another. How will they know that we are his disciples? If we have love one for another. That's why it fits. And what Paul's doing is he's kind of giving us a little foreshadow. This is what's coming a bit later in the letter. I'm going to expand on that whole idea in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and explain to you what it means to live that life, live that image out before the world in your own lives. Listen, the nature of God's choosing us was his sovereign will. The means of God's choosing us was in and through Christ. The basis of his choosing us was having predestined us and according to the kind intention of his will. 
The purpose of God's choosing us is that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. What's the goal of the whole thing? And well, this will really quickly wrap up. The goal of it all, and we can see it right down in verse number 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Listen. One of the neatest things about this, this little passage here, it's broken up into three main sections. You can see it from verse number 3 to verse number 6, and he finishes off to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then he picks up in verse 7 and goes all the way down to verse 12, and he finishes up by this phrase, to the praise of, the, of his glory. And then in verses 13 and, uh, yeah, 13 and 14, talking about the Holy Spirit's work, and how does he finish up? To the praise of his glory. How does he start the whole passage? Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, or more accurately, worthy of praise is God the Father. He says, look, God is worthy of praise. The Father is worthy of praise because he chose us. The Son is worthy of praise because he saved us. And the Spirit is worthy of praise because he has sealed us and filled us and enables us to live this Christian life. But it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. And what strikes me as I read through this and unpack it and work my way through it is just how much God's grace rolls out over all these words. Left to ourselves, we would never choose for God. But God in grace chose us. Left to ourselves, we could never, ever be adopted into God's family. But in grace, having predestined us to adoption, he brought us into our, his family. Something that we used to do when I was a kid, but we don't seem to do it much anymore, is to call each other brother and sister. We are, you know. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what they say, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. And it's true. We have been included in God's family. We are to bear his likeness out. Listen, our lives are to be lived as an ongoing expression of praise and thanksgiving to God for all that he has done. You read through this and all you want to do when you finish it is to stop and close your eyes and lift up your hearts and give thanks to God for what he has done. Left to ourselves, we would still be completely living for ourselves lost in sin, dead in sin, living according to the course of the wicked one, living according to the course of this world, the lust of the flesh. But by God's intervening, by God's grace, we have been gathered and brought together. We have been given new names. That was part of adoption. We have been given a new hope. We have been given the Spirit of God to fill us and seal us and enable us to live this life. What an amazing God we have. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to uh, sing the last hymn and benediction. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, the words of that hymn just run through my mind as standing here for a moment. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Father Paul wrote, Worthy of praise is God, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Father, we stop this morning. And we bow our hearts and our heads and we give thanks to you, O God, for you have indeed poured out on us every spiritual blessing. And Father, when we realize that we were totally unable and totally unwilling to come to you, we had no desire, no interest, no delight in your things. And yet before you even commenced the universe... Before you created any one of us, you chose us in Christ. You predestined us to be to adoption as sons and daughters. 
Father, you did it that we would be like you. We have been called, O oh God, to be your image bearers to this world. Father, like Paul, we would long to be a people who are worshiping people, loving and praising and singing the glories of your grace. Father, we give thanks. We rejoice this morning in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that through him we have life, new life. Father, we thank you that we have been born again. We have been regenerated by the power of the living God, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, this morning, talking about these things, Father, I plead with you that if there is one person in this room that is not sure, has doubts about their salvation, doesn't know whether they're truly a part of the family of God or not, Father God, I plead with you that the Spirit of God would give them no rest until they sort it out, until they come with bended knee and hearts open and Word of God open to find out, Lord, to know you. Father, I give you thanks for the cry of those men on Pentecost Day. Sirs, what must we do? Repent and be baptized was the answer. Father, I thank you for the point in all of our lives when you reached down and you awoke us to faith and repentance. Father, that we were able to see the realities of the gospel. We were able to see the truths of Scripture. And Father, I give you thanks Oh God, that you gave us the faith to believe. You called us and drew us to yourself. Father, thank you for the work of grace that has been done in our lives. But Father, we pray with you this morning that as we go out from this place and we go back to our jobs and our homes and our schools, Father, I pray, I pray, I plead with you that you would give us a great sense of the urgency, the need to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with us. Father, thinking back to for all of us to the one day, that moment when we heard the gospel as somebody shared it with us. Father, I stop in this moment and give you thanks for Larry Reimer, who shared the gospel with a bunch of 13-year-old kids in a camp cabin. Father, I give thanks that we heard the gospel. Father, I plead with you that you would do a work in our hearts that we would go out and we would share the gospel. Father, we would share the grace that we have received with others. Father, we ask you for help. We ask you again, O oh God, for this church. We pray that you would revive us according to your word. Father, renew in us that zeal we had when we first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Renew in us that deep love. Father, we pray that we would be a people who love each other as you have loved us, as the Lord Jesus has loved us. And Father, we ask you these things and we give you thanks in his name. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing is the hymn up there. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Let's sing together.